Well, good morning. Welcome to the annual Cotton Market Roundtable. This is our 18th year of recording our roundtable from here in New York. Uh, we're coming to you from the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, we want to thank Ice Futures U.S., uh, specifically uh, Tribune Bland, who's president of Ice Futures, and Tim Berry for all the work they do to make this possible. We also want to recognize our sponsors, Fibermax and also Stoneville Seed and the Ag Market Network for bringing this program to you. The format for today is we'll have our cotton panel discuss crop conditions across the U.S. Uh, also, we'll discuss some outside factors affecting the market, and then we'll turn it over to our lead speaker, uh, Gerald Nieper, uh, and then we'll have a question and answer period. We want to recognize our speakers and give them a little introduction right now before we get started. Dr. O.A. Cleveland is Professor Emeritus, Mississippi State University. He is a very well-known cotton marketing expert. O.A. has been with us since the very beginning of the Ag Market Network. He'll cover the Southeast, the Mid-South, and the Delta. Uh, we've got Gerald Nieper. He's the president of Calcott. He's in his 10th year as president of the 89-year-old co-op. He has been with us since our first year doing the Cotton Market Roundtable. Uh, Gerald will cover California and the Southwest as well as being our lead speaker after, after we're through covering the different regions of the country. Dr. John Robinson is professor and extension economist, cotton marketing, Texas A&M University. He'll cover Texas and Oklahoma. Then we have H.W. Uh, Kip Butts. He's senior cotton analyst and director of energy services with Informa Economics. Kip will talk about outside influences affecting the cotton market. So let's go ahead and get started and start off with uh, Dr. O.A. Cleveland. Thank you, Pat. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you today. And uh, Treblu, appreciate uh, ICE and everything y'all do for us and for the market. So once again, we uh, have had the support of the what I tend to call the cotton exchange for <laughs> many, many years. <laughs> We're still the cotton still exchange. Still the cotton exchange. Just got a little there bit bigger. <laughs> But uh, so let's let's visit a little bit with what I see with respect to acreage and plantings. Probably what we're seeing uh, with respect to the USDA number uh, with uh, first, uh, excuse me, with consumption with production, it's a little bit smaller than what USDA seems to be carrying. But it looks like in the southeast, about a 4.9 million bale crop. Uh, as we go through various states, uh, Alabama. Two, two different crops, uh, certainly to several locations, but the northern, North Alabama crops uh, got a much better start. It's doing much better. It's had more consistent weather, and it's a, it's a very nice crop there, whereas there you, you, you find some spotty situations in South Alabama. But uh, in total, looking at about uh, 850,000 bales probably coming out of the state of Alabama. Now, Georgia, uh, the south, uh, irrigated southwest area, the big, uh, the big daddy of the Georgia crop, uh, again, a very mixed bag. Some's late, some's early, some's just on time. Uh, but uh, that's not so bad coming out of Georgia because they're used to handling crops of uh, different age groups within the same field or within, with the same, within the same micro area. So uh, that, that crop is progressing and when, when most likely will turn out to be a very good crop, but it needs some help as it gets pushed along. The North Carolina and the Carolina crops have been uh, a little bit delayed due to drought, due to moisture situations, but those crops have come on uh, here literally in the past five or six days because they did get some decent weather. They had several, several good rains that came on, but those crops are going to have to continue to get very timely rains to mature to the point that uh, we'd like to see them go and to, to be able to push the crop out of the southeast up to about 4.9, 4.8 million bales. Moving into the Delta, uh, first uh, Mississippi, the state with the largest acreage, is uh, uh, probably off to the best start, certainly in my history, and, and since I've ever, since I've looked at cotton. Uh, it's off to just a fantastic start. Uh, some people are, say, are calling it today around 1,150 pounds per acre, which I would tend to say is a little bit low, but we'll just have to see. As an outside chance, we could get up to 1,175, 1,180, 1,190 pounds per acre in Mississippi. Louisiana, very important cotton state, but it's lost acreage. It just continues to lose acreage. Uh, it's, a, it's a good crop, but uh, the, the acreage factor is, is impacting them uh, down to about only 170,000 acres this year. Uh, 
Uh, real quick, looking at Tennessee and Missouri, those crops are off to outstanding starts. So as we look at the Delta, we're seeing an estimate of about 4.5 million bales, maybe 4.6, and the southeast about 4.9. So the southeastern crop's going to be larger than the Delta states this year, Mississippi River Delta states. Uh, so just looking at that, that's where we see, but with the crop a overall rated a very good crop, but not uh, not a barn burster as some crops we've had, Pat. Thank you. All right, John. Well, in the southwestern region, um, we began the year, as everybody does, under the influences of markets and weather. And so the, the market influence, uh, you know, we saw a steady upward march of December ice futures. Uh, relative to grains that favored uh, an expansion of cotton plantings, and we've we've seen that year over year. Um, and that incentive to plant more cotton was reinforced by the spread of dry soil conditions early on. So if you if you go back and look around Christmas time, all of Kansas, all of Oklahoma, and all of northern Texas was rated abnormally dry to moderate drought on the on the drought monitor uh, map, with a sprinkling of severe drought in. Uh, in uh, southwestern Oklahoma and, and the corresponding parts of Texas. <laughs> and that, those, that situation just simply spread and worsened so that by April we had uh, drought conditions covering the majority of Texas, including all of South Texas. And we saw parts of uh, the drought areas intensifying to extreme and exceptional ratings in the Texas Panhandle from there up, upwards to southwestern Kansas. And so um, as many of the the areas with the latest planting date that would be in northwestern Texas, as they were passing their crop insurance planting deadlines, just to make it confusing, we then started to get rain events coming in, um, you know, scattered, widely scattered rain events from late April through through mid-June. And so um, it was frust frustrating because many of the farmers, particularly in the southern high plains, would see these rains come and be forecasted and then either fade away or kind of drift eastward. And, and other things happened. We had the remnants of Tropical Storm Bud that, that added some of the scattered rains into that mix in far west Texas and in the high plains. While that was happening in June, we had a tropical wave come in on the Gulf Coast and brought excess rain and even flooding into south Texas. And so it's a somewhat confusing patchwork of, um, of rainfall and soil moisture as the result of that. If you look at like a 90-day uh, observed precipitation map, you'll see that the areas that have caught the absolute least of this would be the southern high plains and some of the central areas. There's, there's been better accumulations along the eastern cap rock and western portions of the, of the rolling plains. And then the further north and east you go, but particularly the further north you go, Oklahoma and Kansas have caught the, the highest amount of, of these accumulations of the rains that have happened uh, during the April, May, and June period. And so these rains didn't come in time to save the uh, early, well, unemerged dryland stands in places like the Rio Grande Valley and in the southern high plains, particularly the southern portion of the southern high plains, La Mesa and surrounding areas, Dawson and Lynn County, there's been widespread just uh, abandonment of acres that, that never came up because they missed the rains and it was just so dry. And there were some areas like that in southwest Oklahoma too. These rains also came too late to avoid lower than average yields in most of the coastal bend, although it's, on the other hand, there's like 70,000 acres reportedly of replanted acreage in the coastal bend that actually benefited, will benefit from, from the June rains. And then the further you go up the coast and in central Texas, uh, the, the upper coast region, the lower blacklands, a number of the little sprinklings of northeastern and east central production, they all benefited a lot from that June moisture and may have average to above average yield potential as a result. And then when you get out west, and we're in the situation now where the remaining blooming cotton, which is, we're talking mainly the rolling plains and the high plains, we've had <coughs> recent uh, extreme high temperatures and the blooming cotton is, is indicative of the peak water demand. So the remaining yield potential and remaining abandonment of standing cotton is all going to be influenced in just in the next in the next week or two, depending on how much rain um, they get during this period. So, how to characterize all that in terms of uh, of uh, production forecast? I simply uh, have taken the uh, average abandonment from dry years out of the last ten. There's been five years excluding uh, 2011, so I'm talking about eight, nine, 12, 13, and 14. 
uh, if you average abandonment for Texas over those years, you come up with 36%, which I think is, is reasonable, although it may increase a little bit depending on what happens with the weather. Uh, if you apply the straight average yields from those same years, uh, you come up with something like 6.4 million bales of production. Um, I could come up with a slightly lower alternative using uh, some, some trend yields. So 6.2 to 6.4 million bales of Texas production is what I'm expecting, call it 6.3. And then Kansas and Oklahoma, right at the moment, I'm looking at about 930,000 bales from those states combined. That's it, Pat. Okay, Gerald. Uh, thank you, Pat. <clears throat> the, uh, I, I guess the thing that uh, characterizes both Arizona and California this year is acreage didn't live up to uh, the, the March planning intention survey. Uh, California especially, in, in, uh, at the end of March, USDA estimated 312,000 acres in California. Uh, that was 230,000 acres of, of Pima and 82,000 acres of Upland. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the state water allocation in the Central Valley Project, they didn't come out with high enough allocations early enough for growers to go ahead and, and get uh, uh, the crop in. So we ended up with, uh, instead of 312,000 acres, around 260,000 acres. Uh, that's 210,000 acres of Pima and 50,000 acres of, of Upland in California. Um, which is really quite small. I mean, consider that there's about 4,000 acres north of the San Joaquin Valley, and there's around 10,000 acres in the Southern California desert region. So, you know, you're looking at uh, 36,000 acres of, of upland cotton in the San Joaquin Valley, which is quite uh, astounding when you look at the, the history of the San Joaquin Valley. Um, but uh, the, the Pima crop, 210,000 acres, uh, uh, you know, even though the water isn't so good this year, or in terms of enough allocation early enough, the, the uh, weather has been fantastic. Growers are very, very enthused about the crop this year from a, uh, from a yield potential. Bug pressure has been very, very uh, low. Um, you know, an occasional Liga uh, uh, siding, but uh, other than that, it's been very, uh, very good year. Expecting uh, production in California of around uh, 675,000 acres, or 675,000 bales of Pima, and uh, around 177,000 uh, bales of uh, Upland. Uh, we go into Arizona. The, uh, the acreage didn't uh, live up there either, although I think at the last minute, guys started putting some more alfalfa back in, uh, planted a little bit more grains. Um, we may see a slight uptick in, in these numbers as even in the month of June, some of these growers were coming in behind their winter wheat and putting some cotton in. Um, they can't do that, they couldn't do that very late into the month of June, but, but they were doing that. Um, the crop has been, got off to a really, a, a pretty darn good start. Um, guys were pretty happy. It's a little patchy in places. The, the concern right now is that uh, this week was, is a very, very hot week. Last week we had some level one, some level two heat stress. This week in Arizona, temperatures were supposed to get up to the highs of 115 to 118. So they were looking at some possible level three heat stress. And uh, you get that kind of heat and you're gonna lose some, uh, some fruit shed. They always lose some fruit in the middle of the summertime, and, and, uh, but uh, um, this, was a, this was pretty extreme. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, Arizona, 150,000 acres of, of upland cotton. Uh, pretty decent yields, gonna give us a crop of 450,000 bales of upland. Uh, they don't grow a whole lot of Pima in Arizona, only around 14,000 acres. Uh, yields will be good enough to produce a crop of around 26,000 bales of Pima. Uh, New Mexico is, is really in, in pretty darn good shape. Um, it, well, it's kind of two different crops. South of El Paso, the crop is in pretty darn good shape. North of El Paso, Texas, the New Mexico crop is, is more questionable. But uh, uh, all in all, I think uh, the, the overall crop is, uh, is, is quite good. When I say south of El Paso, what I'm really referring to is the Pima cotton that's grown south of El Paso uh, in a uh, uh, couple of counties down there. That, uh, that crop is looking pretty good. North of El Paso, the upland cotton and some of the Pima cotton is a little bit more questionable. But uh, all in all, about 140,000 bales of, of upland cotton produced in New Mexico and around 12,000 bales of Pima. In, uh, in Texas, 
the, the Pima production will be somewhere around 22,000 bales. So put it all together, expecting 772 of upland in Arizona, California, New Mexico, and 734,000 bales of, of Pima in uh, Arizona, California, New Mexico, and uh, Texas. Thank you, Pat. All right. Uh, Kip, what are some of the outside influences in the cotton market now? Well, there are several. Thank you, Pat. Uh, first, I want to thank you for this invitation. It's always a pleasure to be with this group of, of great cotton experts. I always learn something when I'm here at this convention or this little seminar. Well, one of the most, last year I talked about one of the most dominant factors for the cotton market is government interference or government uh, regulation in the industry. India's been involved with that, and new state uh, national tax has influenced the way cotton moves inside the country. But right now, the most prominent feature are the trade wars. And that's seemingly everywhere, and there's no way to escape it. The primary fight is one between U.S. and China. The WTO rule violations have been numerous and blatant by the Chinese for years. But before one casts aspersions solely on the Chinese, one must remember they've been successful not just because they're good negotiators, but because those who were responsible for ensuring good behavior just didn't insist on that. There were several reasons for the dereliction, but primarily at the time, rightly or wrongly, it seemed financially worth it to look the other direction. I suspect the Chinese have been wondering for some time when the gig would be up and they would finally be called out for bad behavior. It seems we may be there right now. Though China is getting the most attention, and rightly so regarding cotton, trade squabbles with the EU, the Middle East, and even NAFTA are topical to geographic, uh, geopolitical stability. All that esoteric conversation's well and good, but what does this really, uh, the trade squabbles mean for cotton? In the short term, it means changes in the trade flows with increased spending investment in Bangladesh, Indonesia, and Vietnam. Those countries which already have substantial Chinese investment will see even more. And the cotton yarn will flow into China at an accelerated rate relative to the last two years. Expect India and Pakistan to increase spending and export cotton yarn to China, primarily due to their excess capacity and proximity to the country. That will likely increase U.S. shipments to both of those countries at levels not currently expected. Overall, U.S. exports may be negatively impacted, but probably not to the degree many are expecting. Of course, that's ultimately dependent on the U.S. supply, which you've already heard a bit about. The recently lowered USA global stock numbers will make any foreign supply problem more pronounced and increase demand for U.S. cotton. Brazil will increase exports to China despite the transportation fiasco in that country. Cotton will benefit in many ways, more so than soybeans and certainly more than corn for both the trade battles and the transportation difficulties because of the relative value of the commodities. The imposed minimum trucking rate favors cotton over soybeans and leaves corn to lose area to cotton if the tariff and trucking problems remain. Currently, uh, the transportation costs relative to commodity value from Rondonopolis, which is in Mato Grosso, to Santos Port are 20% for soybeans, 60% for corn, and only 3% for cotton. When they impose, or it is imposed, but when it actually takes effect, the uh, mandated minimums, it even gets a little bit worse for uh, for soybeans at 25%, 76% for corn, and still only 4% for cotton. Cotton, therefore, is the clear winner. It also should be, should be noted that the farmer margins at current prices favor cotton over corn and soybeans in the expected coming year simply because of lower input costs for cotton. In the longer term, the jury's out on the uh, tariff impacts because ultimately it will be the retailers that have to decide how to maintain their profitability and how much of the tariff costs they're going to absorb. If consumers are spooked by the trade problems and put their hands in their pockets, so to speak, then retailers that first and foremost need to be profitable will be forced to find a, an acceptable price point that might include, unfortunately, a change to alternative fibers, cutting into cotton's resurgent demand. If the U.S. economy raised strong, as it recently has been, then the consumer may not revert to the cheaper products as quickly. Primary concern I have, though, for the impact of tariffs in the longer term is the consumer might falter, and we would lead to further problems both up and down the business channel. Now let's put this into context. The trade wars are occurring at the same time the U.S. economy is growing at a, quote, long forgotten pace. This morning, we got GDP number released at 4.1%. And though inflation has slowly reached the Fed target of 2%, it's had a rather metered 
a rather metered, mm, let me try this in English, a rather metered rather than measurable detrimental effect on the U.S. economy. Though there'll be also policy considerations, the fastest growing economy, the fast growing economy and inflation has forced the hand of the FOMC to incrementally increase interest rates from historically low levels. These quarter point increases have not yet dinged the economy with regulatory stickiness loosened and the tax burden lessened for both corporations and individuals. However, those rate increases have increased the value of U.S. dollar against nearly all trading partners. China has long been accused, and often rightly so, with currently ma currency manipulation. Though it's difficult to determine how much of the nearly 7% recent decline in the currency has been orchestrated by the government, it's clear the government has done precious little to stem that trend lower. The truth is China's economy is still, give or take, depending on how you measure it, 20% plus dependent on exports. So traders are ready to sell any currency with that degree of exposure. In short, we think most of this yuan decline is short selling by traders concerned that the Chinese exports will suffer mightily in this environment. The Chinese government is a bit of a fix at the same time because of internal credit problems, a staggering and increasing number of non-performing loans, and with the weaker yuan and eye-popping energy import bill. Now they have a Fort Wright and uncompromising U.S. president with which to deal. By the way, exchange rate fluctuations will also be another reason for changes in the trade flows. I would be derelict without briefly touching on the speculative trader positions in cotton. Those weekly numbers will be released this afternoon. Typically evaluate the speculative position in measures of extremes. At 90% of the three-year record, long or short, it's identified as an extreme position. The managed money position at just over 81,000 contracts is almost 28,000 contracts from the record large position set in January. The net position as a percentage of open interest is at 23%, compared with the 34%, which was the largest percentage. Neither of those two positions present a roadblock for speculative traders if they choose that they, to increase their net long position. I should note, at the same time, futures open interest is at all-time highs for this time of the marketing year, and that's been the case for much of the marketing year. The bottom line is specs have plenty of ammunition to add to the long position should that be the proclivity. Another market metric that's in a, outside the traditional supply and demand is the potential impact on prices of the CFTC cotton on-call position. That position has been outsized to the short side for the entire marketing year and now well into the next marketing year as well. Some are not entirely familiar with that report, so I'm going to briefly explain its contents and how to think about it. There are two parts of this report. These are on-call sales and on-call purchases. This is where the basis is fixed but not the price. What happens with this, think about it from a merchandising hedging perspective. A merchandiser would sell cotton typically to a textile mill with the basis only without the price fixed. <clears throat> when the mill decides to fix the price, the merchandiser then has to buy a future to complete that hedge. The opposite is true for the on-call purchases. When the sale of the uh, merchandiser, typically to a farmer, could be another merchant, typically a farmer, with the basis and the price not fixed, when the seller decides to fix that price, then you wind up having to sell a future. So the long and short of it in this case is that the on-call sales represents a future buy, the on-call purchase represents a sell. Um, over the course of the marketing year, the sales side or the buy side of the market has vastly outnumbered the sell side. The bottom line on this is with everything else unchanged, there's more buying power in this market than selling, at least from the perspective of the on-call uh, position. Another outside factor, as I mentioned earlier, is the Brazilian truck strike, which gripped the country for much of the year. Though it's, quote, settled as far as the courts are concerned, it's still not business as usual. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that because, quite frankly, it's ongoing with lots of complexities, and these are things I'm still learning. Uh, but I don't want to detract at this point from what Gerald needs to say. Uh, perhaps we can extend the conversation during the panel discussion. The bottom line is that the minimum trucking prices dictated by the new laws favor cotton. It's important we recognize we will probably see an increase in Brazilian cotton area as a result of that. If the tariffs continue for an extended period, which now apparently appears likely, 
Cotton gin and capacity, the limiting factor now for Brazilian exports, will expand, as will cotton area. Pat, I'm sure I missed a few things. Uh, I don't want to take any more time from Gerald, so I will uh, thank you for organizing this event and Ice Futures U.S. for hosting us and our sponsors, Fiber, Mac, and Stoneville Seed, who made all this happen. Thank you, Pat. All right, thank you. Gerald, thanks for leading us today in our market discussion. Well, I appreciate it, Pat. Uh, I can't believe it's been 18 years since we, we started this uh, uh, endeavor, and I think it's been uh, very successful. And, and again, I'd li like to uh, join my uh, uh, fellow panelists in thanking Ice Futures and, and our sponsors, uh, FiberMax and, and Stoneville. It was, 20, it was July 20th, 2017, when we last met as a group here at the Stock Exchange and presented our outlooks. On that day, December futures closed at 68.98, or almost 20 cents lower than where we sit today. And most of us were nervous that seeing anything in the mid to even high 70s for the rest of the year was purely a pipe dream. In fact, there was even talk that maybe a dip back into the 50s, even low 50s might be possible. At the time, there appeared to be a good reason for the rather gloomy outlook. USDA's July 2017 world supply and demand statistics were not overtly negative as a world crop of 115.4 million bales butted up against world consumption of 117 million bales, meaning that world stock should have dropped, except that due to prior year adjustments, the ending stock estimate of 88.7 was a million bales larger than the previous month. The July 2017 report also highlighted stock concerns in, either, in other ways. At that time, and it's still relevant today, but at that time, the popular statistic was to observe world-less Chinese ending stocks. China's new reserve policy that began in, in the 2012 and 13 crop years, and, pol and reserve policy and buildup in supplies meant that uh, world-less Chinese ending stock estimates had become quite relevant. From 2011 to 2016, world-less Chinese ending stocks averaged 40 1.8 million bales. At the end of the 2016-17 crop, USDA estimated that those stocks would be 41.9 million. For 2017-18, they were expected to grow to 49.4 million, uh, or an increase of 18%. That's a very sizable increase. Of the 7.5 million bale increase in world-less Chinese stocks, U.S. estimated was estimated to contribute 2.1 million of those 7.5 million bales. A year ago, USDA estimated production of 19 million bales, or the largest since the 2007 crop year. Total offtake was estimated at 16.9, 3.4 million for domestic, and 13.5 million on, in exports, resulting in an ending stock number of 5.3 million bales, or 65% lower uh, or 65 percent higher than the average of the previous eight crop years when U.S. ending stocks averaged about 3.2 million bales and had not once gone over 4 million. Just for a moment, let's step all the way back to July of 2016. In that month, USDA estimated exports for 2016-17 for at 11.5. As it turned out, the final number was 14.9 million bales. So, you fast forward a year later to July of 2017, U.S. exports were estimated at 13.5 million bales, or 1.4 million bales less than 2016, although new crop export sales commitments were almost twice as large. New crop sales commitments for 2017-18 were 5.3 million bales, the largest since the 2011 crop year. Because USDA was projecting stocks to grow in the U.S. and in all foreign countries outside of China, and there was no indicative carry between December and March, those holders of physical cotton embarked on a rather aggressive campaign to move U.S. inventory. Last year, on July 20th, December was closed, had closed at 106 point premium to March. Helping sales of U.S. inventory and really other inventories around the world has been a strong world economy. In calendar year 2015, real global GDP growth was estimated at 2.8% by the World Bank. 2016, it faltered a little bit to 2.4, but for 17 and 18, it's estimated at 3.1. 
Growth has been especially strong in an emerging market and developing economies, rising from 3.7% in 2016 to 4.5% to 4.7% in 2018 to 2020. Cotton consumption is highly correlated with world GDP growth, which helps explain why on an almost monthly basis, USDA lifted world consumption estimates over the past 12 months. Since July of 2017, USDA lifted its world consumption estimate from 117 to 122 million bales, an increase of a little over 4%. No doubt this contributed to surging U.S. export sales and shipments. USDA's latest estimate for 2017 of 16.2 million bales is plausible and maybe even a little low, but shipments have dropped off the last two weeks but should continue strong as we move into the new marketing year of 2018. For 2018, USDA estimates world consumption will grow by another 4% to 127 million bales, based most assuredly on stronger global GDP forecasts. This would put consumption above the long-term trend line for the second consecutive year, and more importantly, once consumption has either gone above or below trend, it generally stays there for an extended period of time, on the order of six to seven years. For 2018, USDA projects world production at 120 million bales versus 123.7 for this year. A large portion of that decline will come from the U.S., which is currently estimated at 18.5 million, which is down 2.4 million bales from 2017. <clears throat> To anyone following the Weather Channel, the extremely hot and dry conditions on the high plains of Texas is well known. You know, Texas, of course, is broken up into several production districts. The largest of the production districts is District 1S for the Southern High Plains. Of the 7.4 million acres planted, estimated to have been planted in Texas, District 1S accounts for 3.3 million of those. As of July 22nd, it was estimated that topsoil moisture and District 1S was rated at 78% either short or very short. Subsoil moisture was 100% either short or very short. If we look back at a droughty 2011 crop year during a similar, during a similar date, topsoil moisture was rated at 98% very short or short. Of the 3.3 million acres that were estimated planted in 2011, only 932,000 were harvested. 2012, the uh, crop year was not so good, but it was a little better than 2011. 82% of the uh, crop as of uh, July 23rd, 2012, was rated very short or short of topsoil moisture. Acres harvested that year was 1.7 million versus area planted of 3.15. Seemingly, 2018 is marginally better shaped than either 2011 or 2012, but it's too early to know. Still, product, Texas production will fall well below the 2017 production of 9.27 million. Um, we're actually sitting at an estimate of around 6.28 million. Sounds like we're very close, John. Or 3 million bales below uh, last year. For the entire important producing, uh, cotton producing region of Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, where it's 7.1 million bales versus 10.5 last year. Given the crop conditions in Texas, there certainly is concern that the crop could fall below 6 million bales. The Memphis Eastern crop of around 9.5 million bales, um, it seems like a very good estimate away. Uh, I think that there's a, you'd, maybe a proviso in there that the crop could climb another 200,000 bales uh, given uh, uh, slightly higher acreage um, and uh, uh, better yields. You know, Georgia is a little bit of a question mark. Has a good 30% of the crop it was planted in, in June, some three to five weeks behind normal. In the far west, you heard me earlier say that 772,000 bales of upland and 734,000 bales of Pima. You put it all together, and we've got a crop number of just under 18.1 million bales, which is about 400,000 bales below USDA. Uh, we're getting very close to August, though, all-important objective yield survey, so we'll just see how uh, our, our collective numbers add up uh, versus USDA's objective yield survey. USDA is projecting exports of 15 million bales, which is lower 
due mostly to a smaller crop estimate, is quite achievable considering that new crop export sales commitments are, are at a record. As of uh, yesterday, we're at 6.45 million running bales for new crop export sales commitments. That beat the 2011 uh, estimate or record of 6.26 million. Uh, assuming our production numbers correct and the offtake numbers correct, U.S. ending stocks will likely fall to around 3.6 million bales. And if exports have done what they've done the last couple of years, and that is surprises, we could end up with an ending stock number below 3 million. With respect to the rest of the world, there are plenty of question marks. You know, China did have an early season weather event in May in the important Xinjiang province that caused the market to rally significantly. As with most weather events, the overreaction by the market was significant while the actual crop impact was seemingly minimal. USDA projects 26.5 million bales, down a million from last year, and this appears pretty safe. Although there are more than one estimate out there that would suggest that the crop in China is at least a million to two million bales smaller than this. India's production is estimated almost as large as last year. The 28.7 million bale estimate is, is only 300,000 bales smaller than last year. But here's the puzzler. Plantings in India are roughly 10% behind a year ago due, due to a disappointing monsoon to date and USDA is projecting slightly smaller plantings. The issue of planting seed quality has been front and center. Insect pressures have been building as growers have not followed uh, buffer zone protocols between conventional and GMO seed. Moreover, the Indian government recently ruled that seed companies could not charge a royalty for the GMO technology embedded in the seed. Consequently, there is no current generation GMO seed except for some possible smuggled seed. And the brown bag uh, GMO seed is an automatic loser versus the original. Having stated all that, the question I have is, does it really make sense for USDA to project that yields would come in 3% higher than last year? I can see that area might be understated given recent prices, but yields to be higher than last year? No. The Pakistani crop estimate of, of, by USDA of 8.5 million bales is okay. Sindh province did not get as much area planted as uh, due to a severe water shortage. However, Punjab province planted 10 to 12% more than last year. The general crop comments are that the crop is progressing nicely. As far as the rest of the world is concerned, we have no reason to quibble about anything this early. And, and what I've presented, presented thus far between the U.S. and possibly India is a world crop that will, could likely fall below 120 million bales, even, possibly even significantly. World production, however, of 120 million right now is projected by USDA and consumption of 127 million suggests that stock should fall another 7 million bales. Unless, unless the USDA decides to surprise us with stock adjustments in India. They made a surprise in July with some stock adjustments in China going back uh, four or five years. Uh, so, you know, we are expecting something to happen in India. So far, the formula USDA uses to calculate Indian stocks does not accept the reality for much lower stocks. Their estimate for India at the end of 2018-19 is 13.3 million bales. ICAC, for example, has an estimate of 8.7 million or 4.6 million less than USDA. We do believe that USDA will adjust at some point in time the Indian stock numbers, but until that time, just know that a 53% stocks-to-use ratio in India equals 88-cent cotton on a local basis. As I was preparing this discussion, I had thought of several items to bring up, but I thought for time's sake we could discuss more freely amongst ourselves the various influences. Uh, for instance, because there was a general feeling a year ago that prices had an, an, no incentive to move higher, a vast number of bales were sold, were put on call, as mills fully expected them to fix at a lower price. That did not happen, and mills kicked the can down the road, a bit too far for most of them. Another item is the influence of more expensive polyester prices. 
Again, another reason we were a little bit negative last year is polyester prices in China <coughs> were 50 cents a pound or close to 50 cents a pound. Today, they're 10 to 12 to 14 cents higher than that. Of course, the big, biggest elephant in the room is a potential uh, impact of Chinese tariffs on U.S. agricultural good, cotton being one that uh, interests us the most. China is expected to have a production consumption deficit of 16 million bales this year, and reserve stocks are down to around 16 million. By the end of the, the auction series this year, they could be down below 13 million bales. They're going to need cotton. In closing, I believe the biggest takeaway for 2018 is the continued growth in 2000 in world consumption versus a questionable production outlook, especially in the United States. The uncertainty provided by the tariff tit-for-tat between the U.S. and China puts somewhat a damper on pricing, but that can change quickly depending on the flexibility of the two sides. Pat, thank you for your time today and uh, look forward to any questions. Well, thanks, Gerald. Let's just sort of open it up for anyone discussing uh, markets, market outlook. Away. Well, thank you, Pat. Uh, <laughs> I was hoping somebody would call on me. <laughs> uh, well, uh, markets. Let me think about markets a minute. Uh, USDA has uh, not done a good job predicting exports uh, for a large number of years. Uh, they're always behind a month or two or three or four or six months behind. Gerald went through that. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that caught this market and sent this market higher than anyone was thinking. Uh, uh, my memory's a little bit different from Gerald's. I was thinking last year at this time that we had some bullishness in the, in the air. Uh, it did materialize, and it did materialize simply on the basis of China needing crop, uh, though we didn't always realize that, but it was there, plus the situation that we had in India with the with the pink bowl worm and, the, and the, the, the not collapse by any stretch of the imagination, but the significant decline in the Indian crop. Uh, Gerald did make reference to the Indian stock situation. Now, I always like to look at, at the world situation with uh, the, the world less China and less India. Gerald presented the wonderful survey uh, discussion with the world less China and why do we say less China? Because the Chinese crop is not available to the world market, so it's world less China. The Chinese crop is only available to the Chinese market. And India, I, I subtract India out of the equation because uh, the industry, uh, I hope USDA will prove to be right, but I don't see it. The industry wholeheartedly, overwhelmingly believes that USDA has made a era of great magnitude in Indian carryover, and certainly if 88-cent cotton in India, if India had 13 million bales of some of the best merchants in the world, that crop would be gone overnight. So India doesn't have anything near that. We did get this, uh, the announcement out of China. Gerald alluded to the fact that we do anticipate a change coming out of India. So it tells us still that there's a lot of bullishness in the air with respect to the market. With the same time, we're seeing world consumption at essentially a record level. Uh, we have uh, this, uh, these, the situation again, from, go back to India momentarily, this crop. They'll probably get their acreage in. They are behind, as Gerald mentioned, but they're behind because they hadn't gotten the monsoon that they need uh, in a timely manner. But uh, they could even not plant as much as we we're anticipating. He did a, Gerald commented about the brown bag situation and the problems that they're having in getting quality seed. So uh, everything points to a smaller crop than what uh, USDA is carrying out there. And uh, it's just going to mean that world stocks are lower for at least the fourth consecutive year. And all of a sudden, we've got a uh, a, a huge demand floating out there, and it tells us that prices have to move a little bit higher. Uh, Pat, for a couple of weeks now, I've been saying that December has 95 cents written all over it. And I'm going to have to quit saying that because every time I say it, it goes down 50 points. <laughs> uh, if we can just get these New York folks to get this market up, <laughs> it's all their fault. Um, but I still feel very confident that this market has, has more legs under it. 
uh, and we and and, and it being consumption based, it will pull higher. Okay, who else? I just wanted to comment. Uh, the uh, I, I think I misstated. Yeah, there was some there was some bullishness, potential bullishness, but I think at the time people were generally not that friendly to the market. You know, we talked that maybe the, the market could go possibly into the mid-70s, but uh, um, there, was, there was a lot of worry that you were going to run down to, to 60 cents or, or, or below. Um, and, you know, it, it was four months later. It wasn't until <coughs> after uh, around November 20th that the market stuck its head above 70 cents and stayed there for the rest of the year. Um, so it, it took a while for things to, to sort of uh, uh, materialize, if, if you will. Um, but uh, they, they finally did materialize, and, and uh, OA, who, who had been uh, beating on USDA for a while in terms of uh, their export numbers, really for the last two to three years. Um, and, and I don't know, perhaps they don't want to disappoint people you know, going forward they are, in terms of you know, if they come out with a huge export number, what could happen? You know, later they have to revise it down, and then people are upset about that. So who knows? Maybe they just want to just surprise people on the upside as, as things go go along. But uh, um, the I'm not sure where I was going with that, other than to sort of pick on OA a little bit. <laughs> not very far. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one thing too, just to, to carry on, on on that very line is that the uh, the consumption has increased in the world, which we were not looking at at this magnitude a year and a half or so ago, and I think that is part of the problem with USDA's quote lagging on the exports uh, and their projections, simply because we have seen a resurgence of cotton in as far as the share of uh, of the textile mix. So I think that's kind of what happened. We saw a shift into demand for cotton that we hadn't seen in several years, at least of that magnitude. It didn't happen overnight, but I do think it was happening and we were sort of looking at, uh, at the status quo. And quite frankly, I know I and some other, we missed that magnitude of increase. We knew it was stabilizing and increasing, but it was just came on much better. So yes, some folks were ahead of it, uh, but I think an awful lot of folks were looking at a bit larger crop at that time and expectation that uh, consumption wasn't going to go to the level that it finally was realized. I was one of those looking for cheaper prices at that time. <laughs> you know, what I'll remind everybody when we had a meeting at the Gin Show, Mid-South Gin Show, uh, Joe Nicosia joined us and he really commented on a change they were feeling as far as demand goes. I don't know if we remember that, that statement, but and that's sort of supporting what you say, that there really, there really seems to be a change in demand that's picked up for cotton. Uh, I guess the 2,000-pound elephant in the room is tariffs. So I guess none of us really know when that's going to be lifted. But OA, I think you've written recently that talking about how tariffs longer term could be bullish. Why don't you talk about that? Well, I think tariffs are long-term bullish because the supply of cotton in the world is extremely short. Now, China may step up and say, well, we're not going to take any U.S. cotton. And Gerald indicated they need 16, they have a 16 million bale shortfall with respect to their consumption. So where are they going to get 16 million bales? Well, uh, to spend the, to mix with the cotton they have, they have to come to either Brazil, Australia, or the United States. Yes, there's a little West African, there's a little here, a little there of good quality cotton, but they're going to have to come to those locations to get anything, to get the quality they, they need to mix with their pro products. So if they say, well, all right, we're not going to buy from the United States, we're going to buy from Brazil. Well, Brazil's out of cotton. So Brazil wants to sell China, they got to come to the U.S. buy cotton to replace the cotton that they, they have committed to their own mills. Uh, some other country, Australia, tends to be out of cotton. So if they sell more of their cotton, uh, they've got to come to the, or they, somebody has to come to the U.S. to buy cotton. So, you know, you can look at cotton as being somewhat bulletproof with respect to the tariff. Uh, and over time, what the, uh, what the tariff will do is it, as it raises the price of, of uh, apparel, uh, uh, the, the tariff coming into the United States, as, though, as that price is raised, it uh, squeezes polyester more and more because most of, not most, but let's say 50%, 60% of what we're getting 
uh, from China is, uh, is, is, is uh, in the way of apparel, is, is, is polyester, or maybe 75% is polyester. So as, 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 as they put the squeeze on those trash fibers, and that, uh, that uh, it, it, it makes cotton more competitive, and at the same time, China has an extremely strong knock on wood, give it to them. They have realized that the, of the, that, the, that the pollution problem caused by the manufacture of polyester is uh, of, of great magnitude, and they've caused uh, polyester plants to be closed. They've quit importing the plastic pop bottles to, uh, Recy to, to, to recycle. Uh, Vietnam is still importing them, but Vietnam is clamping down on the pop bottles to recycle. Uh, so it just it makes polyester more expensive relative to cotton uh, based on the, the magnitude of polyester that's being used. So it gives cotton an up. It gives, gives cotton an advantage. But there is a risk, and it's beyond, and I agree that there's not, I don't really see a cotton-specific or a threat to cotton, U.S. cotton exports from the tariff situation, but there is a risk. The risk is from economic growth not having the growth that we otherwise would have had. Um, I heard some reporter describe the administration's position. If they were absolutely successful in all the tariff efforts they have, what they would end up getting is a, <clears throat> a larger share of a smaller pie, the implication being that tariffs are a tax that slow economic growth. And if there's a risk, I don't know how to quantify this, but if there's a risk to cotton consumption, it's from, it's from that. Okay. Well, they're, I mean, certainly they're a risk. They're, 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 they're full of risk, but at the same time, you know, cotton has always been the leader of all commodities in speaking in terms of fair trade. I think Kip went through the rendition that uh, trade is important, that uh, it's extremely important, but at the same time, uh, China, we've not held, no one, not just we, the United States, no one, no administration has held China's feet to the fire, fire with respect to WTO. The Chinese, uh, Opinion writers are saying, you know, we can't believe the Americans over there talking about Russia, uh, Russia this, Russia that, and they, they're not even paying any attention to what we're doing here, and we're cleaning their plow. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I should have intended it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they, they, you know, they're, 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 they're just cleaning our plow in the market with respect to taking those markets and making polyester more, more or tending of not it's, it's switching now, but they were, they were, they were making it cheaper and they, anything to manufacture. So at the same time, all that's happening, uh, and that, well, where I was headed to was that cotton has always said, impose the WTO rules, we'll play the game. Just ask everybody to play by the same rules. And now then, uh, your major professor, Gerald, I can remember when he was talking about fair trade with China as opposed to Dean, when, as opposed to, to uh, 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 free trade. Uh, free trade's wonderful, but what economists forget, and, and I tend to be one when I can think of real economic issues, what, what we tend to forget is that uh, tariffs, and we're taught that they, they're bad and we shouldn't use them, but that in the real world, there's no such thing as perfect competition. So tariffs are not necessarily bad when you think of the real world uh, environment and the real world capitalist system. It's only when you impose the economic theories of perfect competition, which doesn't exist. But we've got to have a perfect cow to judge that on, so that's what we use. And I, I just to add one thing, I mean, this is all a negotiation, right? So uh, at some point, you might see the, the Europeans join in with the U.S., the Canadians, other countries, and, and, and present more of a unified block against China and, and see some, some major changes there, too, so, which is what I think Trump is going after, right? Good point. We're certainly seeing a, a sort of a trend in that direction with the way the negotiations are going. I think that's an excellent point you bring up. It, uh, and these things seem to have been, at least from a superficial view, moving faster than I think many people thought they ever would have uh, because of these sort of uh, coalitions that occur quickly uh, in these, these trade situations because there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of fear that individual countries are going to be 
penalized or will suffer economically, and that gets everyone's attention. All of a sudden, decisions get made a lot quicker than they are otherwise. Well, let's, let's look at this a little different, uh, and I'm going to direct this to John. Let's say, John, we've got a crystal ball, and we can look at it and see December cotton is going to go to 72 cents. Now, tell us what happened to cause that. Chris, um, the rains that happened this week happen again, happen again. Um, and we get more and more and more bales than we even expected out of the eastern part of the country so that we get a good, healthy 19 million bale crop and then some other external um, tariff-related, something-related black swan thing causes the speculators to downshift out of their net long position and a combination of fundamental factors and external stuff just gets us down to a price level that's still a fairly reasonable, explainable price level, unsurprising price level to be at. Okay. We're going to look at that crystal ball and we see 105. Oh, wait. Tell us what got us to 105. What gets us to 105 cents? Yes. Well, as <laughs> we were talking, I, I'm very reluctant to use that word dollar. A dollar and a nickel, I like to say 105 cents. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> you say a dollar to a cotton grower and, and he tightens up, he's not going to sell a bale till it's uh, a pound. He's not going to sell a pound till it gets back down to 25 cents. He's going to lose it all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, what gets us to a dollar five? Uh, John's range don't occur in the Southwest, in the, in Texas, uh, Kansas. Uh, the the fruit is for the most part parts of Texas not true, but uh, fruit set in the Southeast. The fruit fruit set in 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 the Mid South. This uh, ought to be waiting till August one before I say that, but that's just next week. So. <laughs> We can't put on much more fruit, maybe a tiny bit, unless and unless we would happen to see uh, uh, we, we get good cotton growing weather up until December and January, which means the entire world weather pattern changes. And I'll just say that's not going to change. So uh, I think it's very possible to see a dollar and five cents. We see the mills continue to want to buy on call. They don't want to price anything. Gerald mentioned that. Uh, Export sales, uh, far, forward export sales are at a record level, setting us up for some very strong exports. Uh, we have some more problems in China. That crop uh, has problems. And also we have a revisitation, which is quite, quite, quite possible in India this year of the pink bollworm. They never had that problem till last year. They had a massive infestation. They don't have the genetics to, to, to the GMOs to fight that. What they're planning is not going to fight it. So that it could happen on the basis of foreign production, uh, particularly India, and then the second level would be China, which we know is in trouble. And then uh, the Texas crop goes ahead and just dries up. Uh, we hope we don't see that, but uh, certainly. Texas crop is still probably, uh, and if you want to pin me, pin my ears to the wall on this, you can do it, because I'm a little bit on the loose, loose end, loose sand. Texas crop is probably not as good as we even think it is, and we don't think it's that good. Okay. I'd like to chime in here for just a minute. We, uh, we're all making a similar assumption that the world growth is going to continue as it has now. There's always a fear out here. We have these, uh, and I think I, unless I, maybe you have a, a different thought, but I think we're all presuming that the world growth is going to continue the way it has now. Uh, at least a, a moderately, if not a bit stronger. That doesn't have to occur. Uh, we could be in a scenario where, for whatever reason, the tariffs go south, something, someone has a, some sort of a disagreement, and all of a sudden our demand for cotton. And Gerald made a very good point that there is a, a very good correlation between GDP and fiber usage, primarily cotton. That could change. And uh, that's something I don't think we factor in very often. I'm not saying it's going to happen. It's just you asked the question of what could happen. That's something out there that I think we have to keep in the back of our minds. Okay. I don't believe it's going to, but we need to think about it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's discuss. We, we've kind of discussed the extremes. Let's, let's discuss what we really think 
we could do. And we'll start on this end with John. Give us for December cotton, John, your range of what you think we'll trade low to high. 78 to 98. 78 to 98, okay, yeah. Well, you know, I'm gonna talk about the assumptions uh, and that is a range of where we do get the, the numbers that we're talking about right now. I, I think we'll be talking about uh, maybe a mid-70s, 75, 76 cents to uh, something uh, over 100 cents, very likely uh, with the demand prospects we have now. One thing I want to bring up while we're talking about this, though, we've made a couple of statements about the on-call position and the potential buying on that. The I think mills worldwide, as long as the economy is strong, uh, and prices, even though prices are going up, if they can fix that yarn price on the other side of that hedge, the higher prices are not that big a deal. The mills don't get in trouble until the backside of that, till their textile prices uh, and the yarn prices don't keep up with cotton prices. That's where we start to have a problem. And that's where we could be if we, with these really uh, outsized uh, on-call positions. So that's part of the reason why I'm talking about potentially a, a much higher price. Okay. Than at least that, uh, that John said. All right, Gerald. And to your point, Kip, there doesn't seem to be real strong evidence right now that yarn prices are picking up. That's so, true. I mean, that's a little bit of a negative uh, out there. That doesn't mean that they won't, but uh, it, it certainly they, they haven't yet. Um, you know, mentioned 127 million bales above trend line. Well, trend line for 2018 is somewhere around 122 and a half. So you could you could lose. You know, you could come in at 123 on consumption and still be above trend line. <laughs> so the uh, uh, so you know we could start losing some consumption out there if, uh, especially if the cotton is just not available. Um, you know. Is he just because, <clears throat> and if people aren't scrambling for it, uh, you know, you just you just drop off consumption a little bit. But uh, you've got to like this market. Um, it's just uh, it looks very friendly. Um, you know, upside. I don't know if we can get uh, over a hundred cents, but uh, <laughs> but I think we'll we'll make a run for it at some point this year. I do think we'll even probably even try to make a run for uh, uh, at the very. At the very worst, maybe 78 cents if, if, if some things start uh, going a little sideways out here. So, you know, 78 to, uh, to let's call it 102, you know, 24 cent range for this, uh, for this crop year. Mm. Okay, OI? Uh, those are great numbers that uh, John started and Gerald came through with at the end, uh, Kip in the middle there. Uh, it's, it's tough to, for me to go uh, above a dollar. It's tough for me to get I probably had a great uh, or had, had had much belief that we were going to go back down and look at uh, uh, 79 or 80 cents once again. But I think that that got shut out of the water, shot out of the water about two and a half, three weeks ago. Uh, so 81, 82 cents on the bottom, probably 82 cents, and then. Uh, then we'll just see how this ride can go. Uh, as I said, I've already commented, I think it's got 95 cents written all over it. And uh, get much above that right now, I'm, I step into pretty deep water. Uh, I would tend to, uh, again, come back at, with where we are today. I have not seen the market since we came in uh, the room, but uh, 88 cent December. I still think at 88, 89, 90, 91, we still need to go ahead and price 75% of our crop. If we haven't done so, I did that a long time ago at 94 cents when we made that high. Uh, but we need to do it with the upper 5% of the price range. We may go higher. If we do, uh, we'll have a pound or two left to sell. Okay. Any final statements? You guys him? never ask the person who runs the market what, <laughs> what he, where he thinks it's going to go. <laughs> we, were saying, we were saying that for last. <laughs> you know, it, it, you know I, I'll say this, and, and I, I'm, I, I'm usually wrong about, uh, but it, it seems to me that there's a, there's a lot of demand out there for cotton, and I'm going to be super optimistic here. I'm going to say it's going to be 85 cents to 105 cents. I'm going to go up above uh, good that. Good deal. There you go. <laughs> well, well, we've heard it here. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
We just should have started with you. And exactly. Yeah, make everyone happy. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap it up. And, and first, let's thank uh, Ice Futures U.S., our thanks to, for, to Tribune and to uh, Kip, I mean, for, to Tim for uh, helping us with this and being our host. We'll thank our sponsors, Fibermax and Stonewall Seed. And uh, also thank our panel for everything today, our contribution. We, uh, we appreciate that. Thanks, our listeners. This will be uh, on the Ag Market Network site, agmarketnetwork.com, and you can go on and watch it archived if you'd like. We appreciate you joining us. And that concludes this edition of our annual Cotton Market Roundtable New York meeting. Thank Thanks you, Pat. Thanks, Pat.